0: You're listening to The Christian Working Woman, and I'm Mary Lohman, and I am so pleased and honored today to have a wonderful author with us, Elisa Childers. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Elisa's a voice that needs to be heard. She has an impressive resume, and if we tried to do all of that, it would take up the whole program. <laughs> but she was a member of Zoe Girl, an award-winning Christian recording group, and now she's a wife and a mom, a speaker, a blogger... and and definitely an author. (laughs) So I want to talk about your first book, Another Gospel. And of course, that would take hours if we tried to cover everything. But I have a few key questions I want to ask you. And the title of that book, again, is Another Gospel with a question mark at the end. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You're not presenting another gospel. That's correct, (laughs) yeah. Right. So your first book is a story of how you, a lifelong Christian, Raised in a wonderful Christian home, you sought truth, And you were exposed to and confused by what is known as progressive Christianity. This is a new term for a lot of people. Would you just begin by giving us a a brief description of what that is?
1: Yeah, well, what it looked like for me was a church situation in which I was invited to a small study group. In the study group, all of the core beliefs that I had trusted in, the idea that I'm a sinner, that I need Jesus as my Savior, that His crucifixion was an atoning sacrifice, for my sin, his resurrection. All of these core beliefs about the gospel were picked apart, explained away, and yet people were still calling it Christian. And so I didn't really understand what that was going on at the time, but later, many years later, that church would rebrand itself. So they took down the Nicene Creed from their website. They Mm -hmm. wrote a new creed that emphasized the power of personal conscience, and they said we are now a progressive Christian community. That was the first time I had heard that phrase, but I went on a journey at that point to study it and to read books written by self-professed progressive Christians and try to figure out what it is. What is the definition really to answer your question? And so I think that it's very hard to define. And the reason it's hard to define is because it's constantly changing. It is progressing. It's Mm. constantly changing. There's a broad spectrum of beliefs that fall under that umbrella. It's very fluid. But I would say this in studying it, Although there are a lot of different things progressive Christians might affirm, they're very united in what they would deny about historic Christianity. And one of those things would be the biblical sexual ethic. So there is a um, an adopting of the cultural sexual ethic among progressive Christians. And there's a denial of the idea that human beings uh, are inherently sinful and that that sin would separate us from God. And so it becomes very universalistic in its theology where most progressive Christians would deny that there is a place of punishment called hell, other than maybe the consequences of our negative actions here on earth. So that's probably the most thumbnail sketch I could give you Mm. of progressive Christianity.
0: Wow. And you, as a young woman raised in a as I say, a wonderful Christian home, how did you get drawn into this? Because you you had some good biblical teaching in your life, right? I did.
1: I loved Jesus as far back as I can remember. I loved the Bible. I had read almost the whole Bible by the time I was 12 and read the Bible my whole life and studied it. Mm-hmm. Really deeply devoted personally to Jesus, but that was just never really tested intellectually until I was an adult. So I, as you mentioned in your intro, I spent about seven or eight years in the contemporary Christian group Zoe Girl. We traveled all over, sang about Jesus, all of that. I mean, nothing rocked my faith during that time. So it wasn't really till I was an adult. And I think what probably drew me to it was that traveling around and touring is is a hard life, and you experience a lot of different kinds of churches. And I had become a little bit cynical, I think, and jaded about churches. There were some criticisms I had of evangelical culture. Mm. So when I found this church, they had a lot of the same criticisms. What I was totally unprepared for, however, was that rather than maybe correcting the wrongs, they wanted to throw out the entire gospel Mm. and biblical authority along with it. Mm. And so I, I think what drew me in was maybe a common complaint, but I I did not find their solutions to be satisfying or even attractive because I even wrote in another gospel, if I thought that historic Christianity was not true. I would not be a progressive Christian. That that gives me no peace, no joy, mm. no worldview to put in the place of what it just tore down. So I would just probably be agnostic and, and just mm. live my life. So I never fully bought into progressive Christianity, but I was drawn to some of the same impulses.
0: And the th- good thing about your book is that you really got into it, you understand it, and, and you explain it so clearly in your book. So Why has this faith deconstruction movement gained such following? Is it because of our post-Christian culture or the
1: Internet and social media? What do you think makes it so attractive? I think it's a, a mix of all of those things, and I think it's probably primarily a reflection of the postmodern culture that we live in. So uh, people are defining deconstruction in a bunch of different ways. Some people just mean I'm rethinking my beliefs. I want to make sure that what I believe lines up with reality. I, maybe I have some doubts, and I want to engage those doubts. And I think it's good to do that. I think it's good to engage yeah. your doubts and not push those things down. Ask the hard questions. Absolutely. Um, my challenge is let's maybe use a different word than deconstruction, because how deconstruction is manifesting online, and as it's connected to its postmodern roots, is that it's really a movement, it's a method of rethinking your faith that does not require objective truth or scripture as a standard. So people in the deconstruction hashtag are assessing theological beliefs based on what they personally feel Mm. are helpful to them or harmful, what resonates, what they think is toxic versus healthy. But these words, toxic and healthy, are not decided based on what's actually true, Based on kind of an instinct, Your, yourself is the authority in the deconstruction movement, and that's connected to postmodernism. In fact, Jacques Derrida was a postmodern philosopher from the '60s who is known as the father of deconstruction, and he didn't believe that words could be pinned down to singular meanings. So you could interpret oh, someone's words in any way you really saw fit. And then a guy named John Caputo applied his uh, ideas to religion and specifically to Christianity, and this is where we get deconstruction, which really can land you in a lot of. Different places but really what it is is leaving the historic christian faith or any certainty about the historic christian faith
0: and so dangerous yes For those it's very who,
1: evangelistic they they you know they'll tell yeah, their testimonies yeah. their deconstruction stories yes right so
0: Let me ask you, what do you think is our responsibility, those of us who are in leadership, to prepare believers for this deceptive worldview? What have we not been doing that we need to do? Mm.
1: You know, my mom came to me. I, I had, as a result of this class I was in, I went through a really dark faith crisis. And after I came out of that, my mom said to me, you know, I'm so sorry that we didn't prepare you for some of these things that would come down the pike, these intellectual challenges. And I remember telling my mom, well, how could you have known? There's no way when I was a little girl growing up in the 80s eighties and nineties that you could have foreseen the Internet and the rise of the social media platform where there would be such a flood of information, which by the way, most of which is not even true information. To wade through with all these skeptical challenges, there's no way they could have known that. So, But we do know that now. And so we yes. have the opportunity to raise up the next generation. And I think what it's really going to take is uh, critical thinking. I really think we need to know critical thinking. And that means knowing how to spot logical fallacies, knowing mm-hmm. what the laws of logic are. We need to teach these things to our kids because that all comes down to how you're going to define the word truth. Are you going to define the word truth as something that's just relative to each person? Or are you going to define truth as what is real? When you mm. say something that lines up and corresponds with reality, which that is the definition of truth, but our culture has lost the plot on that. And then on the other hand, we need to know the real thing. We need to know what the Bible says, mm. and not just some cherry-picked verses mm-hmm. that skeptics like to pull out. Know what it feels like in its mm. whole context. Read it from Genesis to Revelation, because there are things you're going to read in Leviticus that you're not going to understand till you get to Hebrews. So get the whole thing in your bones, and then you know when the counterfeit comes along, you'll spot it so much more easily. We all have to be theologians. That's right. It's not just
0: for people who go to school and get a degree. If you're going to stand firm in this world, you've got to know what you believe and why you believe it. That's right. Stand firm on it. Let's talk now to the true followers of Jesus who are just becoming aware of this whole idea of deconstruction and the whole progressive Christianity thing. What do they need to do? to have the solid answers that they need in this Culture of endless questions. Mm.
1: I think it requires every person being willing to go on an intellectual journey if they need it. I don't think every Christian encounters deep doubts, and if that's you and you're listening, you don't need to go investigate every skeptical uh-huh. claim that's come to. I've had people come to me mm-hmm. after I speak and say, "Well, where should I start? I, I you know, I, mm-hmm. I should know all the skeptical." And like, you really don't have to. You don't have to do that mm-hmm. if you're not doubting. But maybe there's someone in your life that has a question. Maybe. There's an obstacle standing between them and the gospel, and maybe it's an intellectual one. And in that case, that might be a really good place for you to start investigating what you think about that. For example, you might have a friend who just can't see the gospel because they've been so persuaded that the manuscript copying tradition of the New Testament was mm. corrupted and filled with mistakes and errors. Well, maybe there's your question. That's where you start. Mm. And you can study that question and study the science of textual criticism to be able to help your friend or your loved one or your child or whoever it is in your life or yourself to come to a conclusive answer on these things. And I think that's the thing I would say, too, is that there are answers. There is There are no questions left that nobody has asked. Every question has been asked. (laughs) I can imagine. (laughs) And and there are answers. There really are. Mm. And so the problem, I think, especially as we talk about deconstruction, is that a lot of people just don't find the answers acceptable. In places where people are given space to doubt and to question, often the answer is just something they don't like and they don't Mm. want it to be true. So then they think, well, nobody answered my questions. And so I think we need to be truth seekers, make sure that what we're pursuing is what's true, that what we say and believe, of course responds with reality. And I think if somebody is willing to go on an honest journey like that, they're going to find truth and they're going to land on Christianity. But if they're just seeking intellectual reasons for the unbelief that's already there, well, they can find that too. Mm. And so I think it just depends on making sure we're being truth seekers and not self-seekers. That's a really good point. And I love what
0: you said about if you don't have doubts, don't worry about the fact that you don't have doubts. Yeah, yeah. And my generation, of course, much older, I haven't been plagued with these doubts But I have dug into the Word of God all these years, and that gives me a foundation. But I need to read what you've written and others have written so that I am prepared to help anybody who might have doubts. Yeah, that's good. And that's really what we're we're talking about, isn't it? I was reading about the experience you had when your nephew died.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Would you just share a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, well, this was actually—I'm very thankful to my publisher, Tyndale, for letting me put that story in at the last minute. Yeah. I had already turned the book in, and mm. then this experience happened while we were in editing. And so it was very fresh on my mm. mind. And so my, my nephew was 21 years old. Two days after Thanksgiving, four years ago, he passed away very suddenly due to a unintentional drug overdose. Mm. It was the darkest thing I've ever been through personally. I was with my sister, his mom, in the hospital um, with his body, and it was, it was just— Unbelievably disorienting. I did not feel the presence of God. I felt darkness. I remember just looking at my nephew, going, What is this all for? And mm. asking all the questions people ask when they go through tragedy. During the couple of days when I was feeling no light or goodness, I appealed to what I knew. And I'm Mm -hmm. so thankful to the Lord for bringing me through that process of assessing the intellectual because I leaned on that. Mm -hmm. And I I could say, I know this is true evidentially, Mm -hmm. whether I feel it right now or not, but then the light began to turn on. And within a couple of days, even with my sister and our whole family being together, I saw the light of God, the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God that is unexplainable. It transcends logic, Mm -hmm. but he was with us. And I know that he was was working all of this together for good, and he Mm -hmm. knows the end from the beginning, and I trust him, and I was able to rely on what I know to get me through the times of darkness when I couldn't really feel what I was hoping to feel. That is so powerful, Elisa. When I read that, it's all marked (laughs)
0: in—your whole book is marked up for me. But I just thought, this is the truth we need to hear. Yeah, you're going to go through stuff that you'll never understand this side of heaven, but you got to know what you know is truth, not your truth, but God's truth, and that will bring you through. That's right. I just want to strongly recommend everybody listening to me that you read Elisa's book, Another Gospel... It's easily available, and you need to read it and share it with others. Well, here's the good news. Elisa's going to be with us again next week when she's going to talk about her second book, which is equally powerful and important, called Live Your Truth and Other Lies. Yeah, don't <laughs> love... miss that second part. <laughs> <laughs> Other Lies. Yeah, I love your titles. We'll talk to you again next week. Lisa. thank you so much for being with us today. Remember, you can share this with your friends. All you have to do is go to Christian workingwoman.org and it will be there and you can share it with others thank you so much for listening today